Hello and welcome to the PHBC Pastors Podcast, where we seek to bring biblical and pastoral insight to everyday issues for the people of PHBC. I'm Brian. Yes, you are. Who are you? I'm Brian. There it is. Today, we are back with part two of our discussion on challenging passages from Scripture. So last week, we went over some general principles that we want to keep in mind whenever we approach the Bible, regardless of what passage we're reading. And then we touched on two uh, challenging issues in particular, uh, what we do with genealogies and then uh, the New Testament's treatment of slavery. So if you'd be interested in hearing about that, do check out last week's podcast. Uh, Today, having established these general principles, We're just going to dive right into three uh, more challenging passages, starting with what may be the biggest one of all. So let me read from Psalm 137, verse 9, where the Word of God says, Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So, Pastor Brian, what in the world are are we supposed to do with, with such a passage? Well, it sounds like we're supposed to take our little ones and go out and dash them against a rock. And so, uh, you know, so much for a baby dedication service, right? Goodness. Um, no, so Psalm 139 would be included in, or excuse me, Psalm 137 would be included in what are called the imprecatory psalms. Um, what does that word mean, imprecatory? Imprecatory. Um, into, imprecatory means to, to swear or to curse, or to blaspheme. And so, um, if you're familiar at all with the Psalms, you know that, um, that the Psalms aren't all uh, sunshine and roses, so to speak. The, the psalmist are, uh, they speak, to, to use a euphemism, if you will, from the gut. Uh, they, they speak and they are honest and raw in their emotions. And so, a number of the Psalms are imprecatory Psalms, Psalm 139 in particular, we don't know who the author of Psalm 139 is, but we know from the context of Psalm 139 that it's being written or uh, at a time where they're remembering a very difficult time in Israel's history as a nation, uh, remembering a time of exile um, in their country. It was a painful time for Israel. And so the author is simply, he's expressing this pain using vivid imagery. Always important to remember, the Psalms, all of them, are written in poetic language. They're, they're songs that were meant to be sung. And so this is poetic language. And so he's, the psalmist is not literally telling us to take our uh, little ones and dash them against the rock. He is expressing a deep anguish of soul. That's helpful. And to get back to what we talked about last week, remembering genre here. So elsewhere in the Psalms, God is described as both a rock and a shield, but we are not to go looking for God's mineral content or debate whether God is a broad shield or any other type. This is poetic language. Um, And so understanding that it is poetic, how are we to, to... understand what is being communicated through this. So another strongly worded passage, Psalm 58, 8, let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime. So so even if we are not to wish upon our enemies directly that they become snails that dissolve into slime, the, the word of God is still using very strong language. So, so what can we take from the, the force and the power behind these words as we seek to apply the Bible today? Well, Psalm 58, Uh, David is the author of Psalm 58, 
And David, in the context of that psalm, he's grieved in his spirit um, as he's recalling the influence of false gods, so lowercase g, uh, false gods, and the influence that they're having amongst God's people. And so he wants the fault, the, tr- the one true God, if you will, to take out the false gods. He wants, he has, he has a righteous indignation uh, toward these false gods. Uh, David has this, has a holy jealousy, if you will, uh, that God's people worship the one true living God. And, and so he's expressing that in such a way that he's saying, you know, he's, He's fed up, if you will, with the influence of these false gods, and he wants to see them um, put to task or, or done away with, and so that God's people would worship um, God and worship God alone. As we should as well. Um, one other word that I think might be helpful on this theme of, of praying for God's judgment on people, um, we often will pray, come Lord Jesus, as we should. We should desire the return of our Lord eminently. We, that is the best thing that can happen to us. And yet, we need to keep in mind that that is a prayer of judgment on the enemies of God, because when Christ comes, yes, there will be rejoicing for those who are in Christ, but for those who are not, that will be the day of reckoning. And so to understand that we are not to shy away from the justice of God, but we need to remember, especially in these strongly worded psalms, that the psalmists are praying for God's justice on God's enemies. So this is not us taking them and saying, oh, well, I don't like this person or that person or that group of people, so I'm going to pray that God would dole out his justice on my enemies. We need to understand that this is God working in God's timing, not the psalmist taking it upon themselves. And so we we desire God's justice, but we need to make sure we're not trying to co-opt it, covert it, and make it our own. Uh, Anything else on the imprecatory psalms, Pastor Brian? No, that's good. All right, so moving on to our second passage, this time in the New Testament, uh, Matthew 12. I'll pick up in verse 25. Jesus is healing those who are oppressed by demons. Uh, the Pharisees are claiming that it's it's only by Satan that Jesus can do this. So, so here's how Jesus responds to them, and he gets to where we tend to struggle. He says in verse 25, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, another name for Satan, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder the goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder the house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come." So this is the passage that includes what is uh, sometimes called the unforgivable sin. So help us understand, what, what is the unforgivable sin? What makes this particular sin unforgivable? Just help us understand this idea. So this is a 
passage that gets a lot of Christians uh, tied up in knots. I have counseled with more than one uh, brother or sister in Christ who was concerned about whether they've committed the unforgivable sin, and we'll talk more about that in just a moment. Um, I am helped here by one of your former professors and your former pastor, Tom Schreiner, actually has a nice little video online about this that's produced by your uh, seminary, and he's very helpful in this and in, in helping us understand this. So the unforgivable sin, uh, Schreiner would argue, is the same sin as the mortal sin in 1 John chapter uh, 5. It would be the same sin in the warning passages that we have in Hebrews. Um, and we need to understand, as Jesus is saying this in the context of Matthew's gospel, that he's talking to the Pharisees. Uh, and the Pharisees are the ones who have, who have attributed to the devil what God is working. They've attributed the work of God to the devil. And so that is the unforgivable sin, that they have taken what God has done and they have hardened their hearts against God to say that is actually of the devil. Um, so can a true Christian commit the unforgivable sin? I, along with most every reputable scholar I know, would say, uh, no, a, a true Christian cannot commit the unforgivable sin. Well, then, well, what about the person who does commit the unforgivable? What if they later change their mind? What if they say, well, I didn't really mean to say that. Well, that's the whole point of the unforgivable sin, that when they've, when they've reached that point where they, have, they are denying the work of God and attributing actually the work of God to the devil, they have hardened their heart to such an extent that they are happy in their sin. They have no desire. It's not that God is keeping them from turning from their sin. They are happy in their sin. They have no desire to turn from their sin. They're not going to get to the end of days and find out, well, you know what? I just really wish I could have turned. They are delighted to be in their sin. And so you might think about it. They don't care of the spiritual consequences where they're at. And so uh, to our Christian brothers and sisters who are listening, if you're worried, have I committed the unforgivable sin? Um, the fact that you're even asking that question of yourself, um, uh, no, you have not committed the unforgivable sin. If you are genuinely a, a, a brother or sister in Christ, you have not committed that sin. Um, but for those who do commit it, uh, they have no desire to repent uh, of that sin. That's really helpful, and I appreciate uh, your words on this idea of the unforgivable sin. Um, let's move on to one final section. So we were in the Old Testament to start. We were just in the New Testament. Let's go back to the Old Testament and look at some of the particular and at times peculiar laws included in the Old Testament. So Leviticus 11 uh, puts off limits to us both bacon and crabs. Leviticus 19 talks about not wearing clothes made of different materials. Deuteronomy 22 says, when you build a new house, you shall make a parapet on your roof. Now, these are just four examples of the Old Testament law, but how should we apply these today? Do I need to, to repent in sackcloth and ashes for being a Marylander born and bred who puts Old Bay on his Old Bay, who loves bacon more than I probably should, and who owns almost entirely a wardrobe made of 
multiple types of fabric? What do we do with these particular Old Testament laws? And what do you do if you're making the appetizer of bacon-wrapped crab at the same time wearing a polycotton blend outfit? You that might be the unforgivable sin, actually. Oh, right goodness. there. All right, I need to really reconsider uh, my life choices. Um, y- y'all can pray for me. Well, these these passages often in uh, what are called uh, holiness codes in the scriptures, they they go to show us the holiness of God. Number one, and so the, they're not useless. Well, I'm not saying that they apply to us in the same way that they applied uh, to the ancient Israelites as they were in the wilderness but uh, they point to the holiness of God and to, the, to his separateness, to his uniqueness. And we are called to be holy as he is holy. But we also need to remember, um, so scholars have helpfully uh, distinguished in the, the law that there are uh, laws that we might call ceremonial laws, that we might call civil laws, and moral laws. And so, for example, uh, the, the civil laws would be um, things that, you know, Israel lived under a theocracy. And, and so they, they governed as unto God um, um, everything that they did. And so they lived in a theocracy. And so there were biblical laws that applied to the government, to the civil government of their day. Do those laws apply in 21st century America? Well, not in the same way that they applied during Israel's day. And so we understand, again, the broad biblical context. How does, it, how does this text fit into the grand storyline of Scripture? Where are we at now in the grand storyline of Scripture? So we are now not under the law, but we are under the law of Christ. And so, so we ultimately understand that Christ in himself fulfilled the Old Testament law. Again, not saying that that the law is now vacated and that the law is unimportant to us, but we understand that in Christ, he completely fulfilled the law for us. Um, He was the perfect example for us so that through him, we might have access to the Father. That's helpful. And I appreciate you making that connection to Christ because there is um, a growing trend, unfortunately, in the church today to, to want to, to use a language that's become popular, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. And so recognizing that there is distinction between how we relate to God and how Israel related to God. So we are in Christ. We are under the new covenant. What we see in the Old Testament law is the old covenant, the covenant that God made with the people of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. And so there is distinction. The danger is to say, well then, that was then, this is now, we are going to unhitch ourselves and just, you don't really, those are nice stories, but those those have nothing to do with us. Well, friends, we need to be really careful about that because this is the word of God. And when God speaks, we are to listen and we're to listen well and we're to listen carefully and not assume that everything that applied to ancient Israel applies directly to us as a one-to-one. But we want to read the Old Testament again through the lens of Christ, understanding that he is our key to understanding and unlocking the Old Testament law because as Pastor Brian just said, he is indeed the fulfillment of the law. Well, actually, I didn't say that Jesus said that. Jesus said of himself, that the that the prophets and the law that they spoke of him. So read Luke twenty four for example. 
he lets us know right away, very clearly, that that these things were written um, of Jesus. And so we shouldn't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Uh, that would be um, very unwise to do that. Recognize that all of Scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, it all points to Christ. Um, and so we do well to read it, to understand it in its context, and to not unhitch ourselves from any part of Scripture. That's good. And then to, to end on a high note, to the point of, of bacon and crabs and those animals, we must, again, allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. And in Acts 10, the Lord speaks to Peter and says, What God has made clean, do not call common. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And so let us rejoice. And, so, and Peter had a bacon sandwich on that day. On, on the spot. So let us uh, rejoice in God's good gift of food and his better gift of Jesus, uh, our mediator of the new covenant in whom we have life, salvation, and hope. Um, so that'll wrap it up for our time today. Do you have? I was going to say, do you think Peter put Old Bay on the bacon sandwich? If he knew it was good for him, he would have. All right. So that'll wrap us up for today. I appreciate you taking the time to listen. If you have other subjects that you would like us to take up, whether they be challenging passages of Scripture or something different altogether, we are always open to suggestions. Let us know. But for now, this has been the PHBC Pastors Podcast.